Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Reverb. I am Alex Helberg, and I am joined on the mic by my co-host and colleague, Calvin Pollock. How's it going, Alex? I'm doing very well, Calvin. How are you? Hey, hanging in there, hanging in there. You know, it's COVID 2021. Let's do it. Let's do it, baby. Uh, and we are also, of course, joined uh, on the mic by a friend of ours, a colleague, uh, really excited to talk to this individual. We have with us Dr. Nathan Penske, a recent graduate from the Literary and Cultural Studies PhD program at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, his writing has appeared in such venues as the AV Club, the LA Review of Books, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and of course, our hometown proud newspaper, The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Nathan, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So we have you here today, Nathan, because you have recently published a very, I would say, well-received review, just because I've I've gone and talked to several of my faculty colleagues here at Trinity who are aware of this already. And when I told them that I was going to be interviewing you here, they were like, whoa, that's you know that guy? <laughs> um, so you recently wrote a review of Steven Pinker's book rationality what is it okay, rationality. something like what it is how it works and why it matters i think yes yeah no it's it's even better than that rationality what it is why it seems scarce there we go why it right. matters yes yeah the why it seems scarce i think is is critical to yeah. include in the title there big part um, of the book that takes up the scarcity part Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I just wanted to start out by asking you, you know, in your in your own work, how long have you been aware of the work of Steven Pinker, Harvard psychologist, and what compelled you to write this review in the first place? So, I mean, I've known about St Steven Pinker for a while. He's really well established in cognitive psychology. And in my own PhD work, you know, I studied philosophy of mind and something called cognitive literary studies, which takes questions and concepts from cognitive psychology and sort of, I was basically looking to do some freelance writing and I saw that he had a, he saw, he had a new book coming out and I thought about reviewing it. And, you know, I hadn't, I had never read any of his history stuff. And so I didn't really, I mean, I, I knew what people said about him on Twitter, but I didn't really get the hate. And then I read the book and I was like, okay, I, I, I see here what's going on. It's the, the book, you know, rationality is just very frustrating. It's just, it's sort of uniquely frustrating. Like it's, but, you know, as I try to express in the article, Pinker has, there, there are aspects of the book that are really brilliant. And like, you can see why Pinker is so well-respected and it's where he starts to kind of drift into questions that are outside of his expertise that he gets into trouble. Yeah. And so that's, that's why I wrote the article and that's sort of where the phrase disciplinary drift comes from. That's, that's awesome, Nathan. Thank you for that overview. Uh, I think, so I know you mentioned that you haven't really engaged as much with his previous work, Pinker's previous work, but I guess like from your reading and analysis of rationality, like how would you say that rationality expresses like a Pinkerian worldview? Like what, like how would you describe a Pinkerian worldview like for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with him and, and what, what problems do you see with that worldview? Well, I mean, Steven Pinker actually answers that question pretty definitively in Rationality. He, he's written three books on this now. One of them is called Enlightenment Now, I think. The other one right. is called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Enlightenment Now, book. I think, is a, that's a parody of Democracy Now, right? Yeah, Just yeah. <laughs> little... From New York, this is Democracy Now!, 
<laughs> yes, it's uh, yeah, yeah, meaning to take the, di- the take the distinction away from the uh, the uh, progressive news outlet. Amy Goodman taking a, a shot at Amy Goodman. That's right. Of course, that's right. Yes, and then his newest one, Rationality, and so over the course of these three books that he's written about the last ten years, I would say he's sort of propagated this theory that human society is getting better in sort of every measurable way that you can think of. You know, he cites people live longer. We were generally happier. We're more empathetic. We were more ready to see the perspective of others and science and technology have progressed to a point that make our lives generally easier than what people enjoyed in the past. You know, and that like, it's of course, some, some aspects of that argument are undeniably true. Like for instance, life expectancy has gone up, but I think that not just me, a lot of people have, have, uh, noted that that he misses quite a lot of nuance in the argument that he's making chief of, you know, among those criticisms are, you know, like for whom has life gotten better is a good question to ask. So he doesn't talk much about like high incarceration rates among people of color in the United States. He doesn't, or global poverty or sort of ongoing ecological crises. These are not, I mean, I think he mentions them in passing, but they're not, you know, substantively dealt with in his argument uh, the horrors of the wars of the 20th century these are these are kind of explained away um, and when he does talk about about them he talks about them in fairly simplistic terms so right around the publication of rationality there just happened to be the publication of a book that's edited by Philip Dwyer called the darker angels of our nature I'm actually looking at a PDF version of it right now the subtitle of it is refuting the Pinker theory of history and violence which is <laughs> You have entire communities of historians coming together to refute your theory, you know, that can either be a really good thing or, you know, maybe not such a good thing. But some of the critiques that Dwyer makes are that, for instance, that Pinker mischaracterizes the history of the Enlightenment and what it actually represents, that it's not really a coherent philosophy that is not unchallenged within its own time. Uh, Another thing that I know that Dwyer really critiques is the idea that of the sort of causal nature between reason and life getting better or the the role that ideas play in history itself that i the idea that ideas drive history he finds that to be quite contentious within the field of history you know like the, the philosophy of history and and so yeah there's just a lot of questions that people have had for pinker about this particular philosophy that he takes up and and he tends to be very dismissive of the critiques that are leveled against him. Yeah, and it, 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 what's I think what was prop, what struck me most about rationality is that he doesn't really engage with those critiques, and he doesn't really take on the historiography of the claims that he's making. He doesn't have hardly he has no secondary sources, historical sources that he's that he's looking to. Uh, he sort of ha- he has some primary sources that he's pulling, and he's he's sort of weaving a, a narrative from v- really diverse periods in history, but it's not it's not all that coherent. So yeah, so a lot of people find his general ethos of human progress questionable. You know, their opinions range from questionable to sort of what the hell is this guy talking about? But I would say that my article is less about that. Like, it, like my article isn't really sort of engaging the, that ethos itself. It's sort of looking at, he's, he's sort of not 
doing history, right? He's making historical claim, but he's not doing history. And so it's it's a it's a question of what motivates that impulse to to want to make those claims without without really making those claims, I guess. Absolutely. And I mean that that follows perfectly into I think the part of your article that's right in the title that I think you you really put your finger on something that so many of us who had been following Pinker's work or had kind of noticed this trajectory in especially his last three books didn't quite have a name for yet. But I think it's it's really powerful, not only because it's alliterative, but it also because it's so precisely defines what exactly is wrong, um, I think, or why a lot of people take umbrage at his work, which is what you call his disciplinary drift. So could you talk a little bit about what that concept of disciplinary drift means and how it applies to, to, to Pinker's most recent work? It, I, I mean, it's sort of like the article I, when, you know, Calvin, you do interdisciplinary work, I know, and I've tried to do some before. And like, you know, if you, if you were to show up to a meeting with, you know, doing digital humanities or any sort of interdisciplinary pursuit, and you just kind of dismissed the relevant methodology that goes into that pursuit, you wouldn't get very far, right? And so, but, and yet, there's a sort of attitude seems to kind of be dismissive of the humanities. And it's sort of, there's there's this idea that like philosophy and literature, critical theory, they're just crazy ideas that there's no rigor or systematicity to it. You know, science is very objective and important while the humanities are very subjective and therefore a lot less important. And I think that this boldens some scientists like Pinker to make claims without doing the proper legwork, more or less. I In the, in the article, I compare Pinker to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson when he's talking about film, you know, so it's like it misunderstands the the ideas that he's that he's engaging with on such on a, on such a strange level that you're like, this isn't you're you're not even on you know yeah so yeah. Um, one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes from the article that you bring in to to explain this point of disciplinary drift is I think you're quoting from Dwyer Philip Dwyer who said that Pinker's work in history and sociology amounts to quote entering someone's house with muddy boots and arrogantly sticking his feet on the table. Yes. And that is from Dwyer. That, that is Dwyer's phrasing. Um, and that's, that's, it, it really sums it up. Like it's, it's just rude, you know, it's, it's, it's published and it's like a, a, it's a book that people read and people, some people like, but it's, but you know, from a certain point of view, it's kind of rude. And I, I wanted to talk about the rudeness of it rather than the sort of wrongness of it. Like, yes, I don't think he's right, but beyond that it's just like no like don't do that you know i think that sort of what the final straw for me was the section toward the end of rationality and i talk about this in the article where pinker divides human behavior into the mythology and the reality mindsets and it's just so i mean I'll, let me just explain it just a little bit so you know as far as pinker's concerned the reality mindset is the, the way that people engage and interact with physical objects and sort of accepted norms that regulate our ordinary life. And he, according to Pinker, in, in that he, people are mostly rational in that mindset. But then there's the mythology mindset where people's brains start to go haywire and and they they stop being rational. So anything involving imagination or sociality or, you know, not to mention if it goes against the norms that are accepted in our society, if there, if anyone's pushing up against those in a way that that would seem to 
disturb the status quo in any way. So, so for Pinker, that seems to entail the sort of strong pull towards irrationality. And what's interesting about that to me is that I would say that according to the way he describes it, the discipline of history itself exists within the mythology mindset. And so it's it's pretty rich that he's making these historical claims while at the same time sort of undermining the basis by which he would make those claims. And so it, it seems very clear to me that what he's doing is that he's absorbing the historical project into the scientific project and doing it in a, the most simplistic way possible, basically. And it's just, it's very, it's very frustrating to hear things like that. Yeah, I think it's especially provocative that he uses that term mindset to kind of contextualize right. these. Like, yeah. I mean, just, I don't know, just because that's become such a such a buzzword. I mean, it sounds like he is trying to, you know, make this feel almost like cool, right, in a sense. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, trying to get people to buy into this as like, oh, it's reality mindset. You know, we want, we want to, so, but I, but I want to know, I mean, for those of us who haven't read the book, what is reality mindset? Like, what practices or prescriptions does he give us for actually, you know, living, living more in line with rationality through this <laughs> rationality mindset. What is, I guess, a better way of, uh, of analyzing history or apprehending the world around us uh, mm -hmm. that is unclouded by mythology mindset in his words? Right. Well, I mean, a big one that he, that he cites is impartiality. So he wants, he basically wants the rational agent to disengage from the forces that would draw them into irrationality. But I, you know, he's not taking into account that a lot of the, the historical forces that draw a person into quote unquote irrationality are impossible to disengage from. And that the, you know, the impulses that he's trying, the, the impulse that he, that he wants us to sort of move towards, towards this sort of very abstract kind of impartial he so he he kind of he has this very very short section on morality where he cites the golden rule and Kant's categorical imperative and Rawls moral theory and you know if if only we could all just be more impartial then then we could we could be more rational and then we could treat people better uh, i think there's an element of truth somewhat to that where you know in our daily lives we have to sort of try and put ourselves in other people's points of view. I mean, I don't know. It just, it's, it's just not satisfying. It's not a satisfying explanation of, of it's not, it doesn't like he, he name drops Kant and he names drop name drops Rawls, but it's, it's not a valid point of view. I didn't want the, the, the article to just entirely be about bashing Pinker. Like Pinker is a fascinating kind of figure in our, in our culture. And, but, you know, I was really interested in talking about Anil Seth and his, his book, which does everything right. I think everything that Pinker does wrong, I think he does right, which is he, he deeply engages with philosophical problems around the, the, the subject he takes up. And we haven't brought him up yet, so I'll, I'll talk about Seth a little bit. You know, Seth, Seth wrote a book called Being You. He basically is taking on these very complex and long-argued questions surrounding philosophy of mind. And he wants to take a physicalist and scientific point of view towards them, but he, from the very beginning of his book, the first chapter of Being You is, is uh, nothing but, a, but a, a, a recounting of the history of philosophy of mind and the difficulties that philosophers have had surrounding consciousness and difficulties that are continuing to happen, by the way, that like, you know, that it, it's still unresolved. So Seth's 
thesis is that we can approach a philosophy of mind scientifically. He has, I think his innovation could probably best be summed up by, by characterizing consciousness as a sort of deep introspection. And it's sort of a, a little bit counterintuitively, it's unconscious, deep introspection to, I mean, the way I put it in, in the article is probably an oversimplification, but it's, it's simpler and also easier to understand, which is that like, you know, you feel sad because you're crying, right? Or you feel, you feel fear because your heart rate ramps up a little bit. And the way that Seth frames that is by using the conceit of narrative, right? Like that our bodies are kind of telling us a narrative. And this is, of course, a concept that strikes to the very core of the humanities. And so the fact that this science writer is not only deeply engaging with the humanities, but using the humanities to explain his scientific theories, I felt I found to be extremely compelling and useful, right? Like I, this, I'm, I'm married to a scientist. I, so I, I'm a little bit familiar with, with how scientists approach the world. And something you know she's always impressed upon me is that you need narrative to explain scientific findings. Like data doesn't just exist in, in our world without framing. I mean, I would just suggest that you should read Seth's book. It's, it's, it's very, very readable. It's, you know, I, I was hooked from the very first page because of my background in, in studying philosophy of mind, but I, I found it to be very accessible and uh, it's just fascinating the way that he talks about mind. Absolutely. I, I, I loved so much that section where you did that contrastive work, right? I mean, I think that's really important for anybody who's approaching Pinker, you know, whether it's for the first time or whether, you know, you're a dyed-in-the-wool Twitter critic of Steven Pinker. It was really useful to see that counter model, and especially with your emphasis on his use of narrative, right? And approaching mm. interdisciplinarity from this perspective, not only of drawing on humanistic methods for, you know, analyzing and thinking about things, but also for, yeah, like you said, communicating it to an audience, right? Where, you know, you say Seth's argument frames his newness against an ongoing history, a story still being told. Narrative then uh, provides Seth a, both a rhetorical structure for his argument, as well as a necessary metaphor for his philosophy of mind, where it illustrates the perceptive illusions the mind tells itself about its surroundings. So, I mean, yeah, that really powerfully gets at the role that narrative can play in not just historical narratives or, you know, the kinds of work that humanists do, but also those that scientists can do as well. So, I mean, how exactly does that contrast from Pinker's, you know, narrative or lack thereof, right? Because, I mean, this is still, his, it still seems to be a story, one of kind of mm -hmm. un, unmitigated progress, right, from the Enlightenment to now, where we can see, you know, instances of rationality popping up, you know, here and there, whether it's ancient tribes or, you know, Enlightenment thinkers, yeah, I mean, I guess how is that story incomplete in a way that in a way that Seth's story, you know, maybe tells it a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think ironically, Pinker is in some ways a very good storyteller. He's great at building narratives around science when he's not sort of edging into these weird historical claims. And that's sort of I th that I think is the difference between them is the way that they engage with the learning that surrounds their claims, right? Like Seth he understands that he's kind of coming in the middle of a conversation, whereas Pinker is kind of wanting to pretend as if he's starting a conversation, right? Something I wanted to ask you guys about actually was the the University of, what is it, Austin or something? Yes. Um, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we, we did want to touch on this a little bit with you, but yeah, please. 
then Pinker, Pinker, I guess, is, uh, is acting as an advisor on this, in this new educational endeavor. He took great uh, pains to distinguish himself as an advisor, not a founding member. Uh, yeah, of right. course, you know, backtracking significantly after sharing uh, Niall Ferguson's op-ed. By the time this episode comes out, I think we will have already done a rejoinder episode on the mm-hmm. on uh, the University of Austin, on yeah. the University of Austin, and the promotional materials surrounding it. But yeah, I mean, I'm assuming you know. What I what I read a lot in Pinker's rationality was what I heard as this kind of like you know beating the drum of culture war, right? right? Which it which it kind of feels like has always been, you know, the work of people like Steven Pinker forms the backbone of a lot of those kind of con- more conservative culture war arguments, which is mm-hmm. that that persistent like very elitist um, narrative about what it means to be literate, sophisticated uh, as a thinker. And yeah, just basically like, you know, dividing up the world into those kind of binary categories of those who are sort of taken and and enraptured by unreality Mm -hmm. and those who, you know, actually approach things systematically with a method in mind. And it's always just felt, I mean, as somebody who studied the humanities, studied epistemology fairly significantly, it's always felt a little bit too simplistic to me, right? That's that's not what the story needs to be, but yeah. Yeah, the, the the whole rational sort of rationality movement, it just it feels very empty to me. It's it's right. it's there's like the, this sort of resounding cry of be rational. Like people have good reasons for being irrational sometimes. And the and just telling them to be rational is not the answer, right? Like maybe understand why they're being irrational or like what sorts of forces are kind of providing the basis for that rationality or whether maybe they actually have good, you know, if there is a sort of overarching rationality to their, to what you're calling irrational, it's, it's just, it's very, very frustrating. The, the idea that if we can all just be impartial and like kind of approach the world, like mathematicians, which is no, no knock against math at all. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. I fully agree, Nathan. I feel like it's, it's kind of, rationality as a t-shirt it's it's basically like a slogan for this crew but there's not a lot of as you said it's devoid of content like philosophical content any sort of historical or material content about you know how our ideas about rationality are shaped what kinds of people and kinds of arguments get judged rational due to those kinds of contexts and 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 that's all just stripped away to kind of market a, a particular set of quasi-academics. I mean, some are, are still in academia, some are sort of one toe in, one toe out. A lot of Silicon Valley money, a lot, a lot of kind of private equity money. I mean, there's a really large sort of scaffolding of political and economic interests aligned with this as well. Yeah. And that's where like stuff like the University of Austin, to me, like, and we're going to get into this on our other episode, but to me, it feels almost like giving it too much credit to engage with their own ideological arguments because the whole thing feels like a scam, like someone putting Uh, a website, like I bet the website will be, will have dead links within like six months, you know, (laughs) it'll just be kind of left abandoned, like a, like a subdivision of McMansions, you know, that just gets right. abandoned after after the money changes hands, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's and what's really beautiful about that too is that you know when and I do say when that project fails, you know they can always 
in classic like Barry Weiss fashion, go back and say, well, the reason that we failed is because of all of the rampant un- the irrationality. irrationality that's mm-hmm. out there. Like it's a constant, like, I, I, yeah, weirdly enough, they're stuck in like this victim paradox where they are constantly under assault, despite the fact that they are the smartest people in the room and, you know, should rightfully be in charge of how universities work and what education looks like. But I don't know. What were your, what were your thoughts on the whole debacle, Nathan? Well, I mean, I think you're right, right on that it's, sort of self-reinforcing argument that like, you know, it's like any sort of paranoia where if, you know, you say there's someone watching me across the street and they said, well, no, there isn't. And then <laughs> you can say, well, that's just what they want you to think. Right. So it's, it's totally self-reinforcing. Um, I mean, w- what strikes me about it is the impulse to separate from the academy to sort of set up your own shop very much characterizes Pinker's work too, right? Like he's, he doesn't want to have secondary uh, historiographical work in, in informing his own historical claims. And, you know, it doesn't matter to, to the people who are founding this college that everybody else in the academy is saying the exact opposite of what they're saying. And like that they're, that they're saying that the sort of liberal conspiracy that is keeping them from, you know, academic freedoms just doesn't exist in the academy in the way that they're describing that it's, it's not, (laughs) you know, there's, there's, if anything, that the academy is extremely conservative in its views and that it's, it's actually difficult for left-leaning people to, to, (laughs) to do their work sometimes. And the sort of financial and institutional structures that uphold the university are, of course, kind of saturated with crass capitalism. And so that, that's sort of what, what impresses me is that like, it's a kind of enactment or it's a kind of it's showing it's showing in in the real world what what pinker kind of likes to do in his arguments i guess it's very separatist very kind of i'm going to do my own thing kind of thing yeah yeah it is it is fundamentally almost like libertarian in uh, yeah. in in orientation as well as ideology which All- which pinker is is actually he's not he's not a libertarian like politically i don't think like he 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 supports democratic candidates as far as i know so i don't know i don't know what's going on there I'm not sure either. All that I can say is that uh, I'll believe I'll believe him when he resigns from his position at Harvard uh, <laughs> to join the faculty at the University of Austin. Well, Nathan, I know that we're coming up against our uh, against our time here with you, but I wanted to end off today with a little something fun uh, okay. based off of uh, based off of Stephen Pinker's book. It's a segment that I am, for better or for worse, tentatively titling "Pinker or Stinker." Insert audio interlude here political correctness has done an enormous amount of harm in in the sliver of the population that might be, I wouldn't want to say persuadable, but certainly uh, whose affiliation might be up for grabs, comes from the often highly literate, highly intelligent people who uh, gravitate to the alt-right, internet savvy, uh, media savvy, who often are radicalized in that way, who, who swallow the red pill, as the saying goes, the illusion from, from, from the matrix. 
<laughs> so uh, what I'm going to do here is I've got a series of quotes from Steven Pinker's latest book, Rationality, what it is, why it's scarce, uh, and why we need more of it. And two of these are real. One of them is fake. I want to see if you can spot the fake Pinker quotes uh, among the two real ones. We can see what uh, I did my genre analysis of Steve Pinker in the same vein of the uh, of the SoCal squared folks. So let's see if I can uh, let's see if I can stump you. Yes. Uh, all right. So <laughs> our first Pinker or stinker quote number one: Reality is a powerful selection pressure. A hominid that soothed itself by believing that a lion was a turtle or that eating sand would nourish its body would be outreproduced by its reality-based rivals. End quote. Mm. That's number one. Quote number two. Quote, the Huli people of Papua New Guinea demonstrate their epistemology thus. Knowledge is only a rumor until it is in the muscle. In this, they share commonalities with other primitive societies that have long held that, quote, might makes right. It is no accident, of course, that the Huli have a life expectancy nearly half that of the average American. Their commitment to superstition, to the position of truth as something won rather than apprehended, ultimately serves as a buffer to their progress, end quote. And then quote number three, the San engage in persistence hunting, which puts to use our three most conspicuous traits, our two-leggedness, which enables us to run efficiently, our hairlessness, which enables us to dump heat in hot climates, and our big heads, which enable us to be rational. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that the third one actually is Pinker. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah, what's your guess, Nathan? I mean, this one's hard. <laughs> I'm glad I did a good job with it. Then. <laughs> I think you did a good job, Alex, because I have I have no clue. Oh my god! I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with the second one being fake. Number two, got yeah. it. Calvin, what's your what's your guess? Just for just for fun, I'm gonna say that the first one is fake. The first one's a stinker, and and number two and number three are pinkers. <laughs> Excellent, uh, Calvin. Number one is Steven Pinker. That is wow. a real quote from Steven Pinker. Uh, and reality-based rivals. Reality-based rivals. Yes. Uh, and Nathan, you were correct in your assumption that his uh, quote about our big heads enabling us to be rational—that is indeed something that Steve Pinker wrote in his rationality book. Number two is the fake. <laughs> Number two wow. is the stinker. What do I get? Do I get? Do I? Do I win something? Yes, we will be uh, we will be uh, mailing you a reverb T-shirt post haste. Um, so, well, we have we that have was two... a really. Did you write that? Did you I write did. The I, I did write that. It, it took you did a really it, good job. Thank you. It was painful, uh, but I, <laughs> I wrote an I wrote another one here as well. Um, so okay. here's here's another set. Okay. So quote number one. Quote. Though confidence in science has remained steady for decades, confidence in universities is sinking. A major reason for the mistrust is the university's suffocating left-wing monoculture, with its punishment of students and professors who question dogmas on gender, race, culture, genetics, colonialism, and sexual identity and orientation. Universities have turned themselves into laughingstocks for their assaults on common sense." End quote. Quote number two. The pessimist vanguard of the contemporary academy the members of C.P. Snow's second culture in departments that dedicate themselves to pursuing, quote, social justice at the expense of truth, have a keen ability to sound rational, at least in faculty meetings where their own resources are at stake. But this is merely rhetorical. 
These same, quote, academics are also the dithering dilettantes of social media who engage in, quote, unquote, canceling scientists merely for drawing sound conclusions from their data, and in their finer moments will lob the name of Thomas Kuhn or words like paradigm shift like so much grape shot. And then number three. The humor in the peanut strip in which Lucy gets buried in snow while insisting that it rises from the ground exposes a limitation on any explanation of human irrationality that invokes the ulterior motives in motivated reasoning. No matter how effectively a false belief flaunts the believer's mental prowess or loyalty to the tribe, it's still false and should be punished by the cold, hard facts of the world. End quote. Which one is the stinker? So hard. Um, I gotta go with the second one again. The, the first thing. one is ridiculous, but I <laughs> I feel like it could be him. Yeah, Calvin. The third one I actually think is him. <laughs> I I feel like the third one about Lucy and Peanuts is some kind of meta joke that Alex is doing on on Pinker and the whole. Uh, University of Texas squad as if that's <laughs> that they're constantly having the football taken away from them. Um, so that's what I'm going to go with is number three. Number the, three. The, that's the stinker. So Calvin, actually, uh, number three is Steven Pinker. Uh, oh that one, he, he literally, as, as one piece of evidence among the myriad graphs and charts that he has in uh, reality, uh, or sorry, not reality now, rationality is, uh, is a Peanuts comic strip uh, in which uh, Lucy is uh, seeing snow fall from the sky, but insists to Charlie Brown that it rises from the ground because that's what she can see. So it's what it's, he uses that uh, as an illustration okay. of the trappings of as he says uh the uh it, it, it exposes a limitation on any explanation of human irrationality that invokes the ulterior motives and motivated reasoning count the noun phrases folks that's bad prose horrific <laughs> joseph williams oh so bad rolling so, in his grave so bad uh Nathan, you are once again correct. The pessimist vanguard, uh, the member of C.P. Snow's second culture, is indeed the stinker. I did pull that from he has invoked C.P. Snow and the second culture in describing uh describing the social justice uh, squad departments. But yes, indeed, he did write that confidence in universities is sinking and they are turning themselves into laughing stocks for their assaults on common sense. Yeah, I, I I thought that 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 was probably him. I, I it didn't see that's not from one of his books though, is it? It is actually. That oh my gosh. is that is from Rationality. Uh, both oh, is it these, really? Yes, both of these quotes uh, are from oh boy. are I from have, Rationality. I, I think I blocked that one. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I blame you. I would want to block out a lot from this. That's two shirt, two t-shirts, right? Two t-shirts. Two, yep, t-shirts. two t-shirts. One for one for you and your partner. Let's see if you can get one for one of the kids. Uh, all right. Cool. So, this is the last one here, right? Yep. This is the last one, indeed. Uh, this one. These ones are a little shorter. Quote number one, quote, the true rationality of syllogistic logic lies not in its content, but its form. It is the simplistic appetency of most people to reverse this equation, approaching data armed with fallacious reasoning and assumptions that cloud their sight, end quote. Quote number two, quote, my own position on rationality is I'm for it, though I cannot argue that reason is dope, fat, chill, fly, sick, or da bomb, and strictly speaking, I cannot even justify or rationalize reason, I will defend the message on the mosaic, we ought to follow reason, end quote. And then finally, uh, 
Quote, Bayesian reasoning recommends against the common practice of using textbook as an insult and scientific revolution as a compliment. End quote. Which one's the pinker? Which one is the stinker? I mean, I feel like those two categories can't be mutually exclusive. <laughs> right. Because like, I know that that, I know that that second one is, is him. That's right. I, I, yes. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that he wrote that. <laughs> I had I, to put I mean, it in there. I mean, everybody on social media has probably seen it already, but yeah. for those of you who haven't, yes, that is, that is a pinker line that is literally in the book. I yeah, feel like that's... it's it's tempting to laugh at the dope, fat, chill, fly, sick, or de-bomb part, but the funniest part to me is the first sentence. My own position on rationality is I'm for it. <laughs> you know? It's like I'm for I'm pro, yeah, pro rationality generally. Great, great. Thumbs up, rationality. Yes. yes. Um. So first and third. Um. Hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna go with. The uh, third is the is the fake one. It's the fake out. Yep, Calvin. All right, I'll just just for the sake of fun, number one is 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 the stinker. Calvin, you are correct. Number one is the stinker. Wow, Nathan. Uh, yeah, his his uh, his prescription about Bayesian reasoning recommending against the practice of using textbook as an insult and scientific revolution as a compliment is indeed in the book. Wow. wow. Okay. <laughs> what does that even mean? What does that mean, though? Oh, no. I mean, it's, it's it's a little unfair to pull him out of context. I that is true. That. He yeah it's, he is he is referring to he is referring to somebody else's like a quote from somebody else. But I just thought that the the application of Bayesian reasoning as like a force <laughs> that can recommend against certain practice. I don't know. That was just certain, so and, funny and, to and, me. And certain rhetorical practices too. It's yes. This Bayesian reasoning tells us what's what's <laughs> kind and what's unkind to say. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. He he did have something in there that was somewhat similar to uh, you know syllogisms are true uh, in their form and not their content. But but the yeah the whole thing about simplistic appetency. I literally was was uh, looking up archaic verbs and adjectives to try and uh, mimic his style here. So. Um, well, Thank That's you. what threw me off because I think I, I remember something <laughs> about the, the 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 form and not not content thing. Right, indeed. Well, thank you, thank you for playing my silly game. Uh, I hope you, the listeners, enjoyed that as well. Just to conclude things here, uh, we've gone over our time, but uh, but we want to say thank you uh, once again to Nathan Pensky for being with us to discuss this truly strange book and this truly strange man. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to, to read his work so that we don't have to. And to really, again, put your finger on something that I think a lot of people had been feeling for a long time and really just kind of precisely nailed what I think a lot of humanists have found wanting from Pinker's work. Before we sign off, Nathan, is there anything that you would, anything else other than your uh, recent review in the Chronicle of Higher Ed that you would like to plug? I uh, I have another review coming out in a couple of weeks on um, a book by Joe Mashinska on it's a biography of Milton, mm, and it's coming out in nice. the Boston Globe. Um, should be, mm, I'd say it's about a month away because I need to get it in in the next couple of weeks. So look for that. But yeah, not not, not an immediate. Awesome. Fantastic. Thanks for all being right. here, Nathan. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. You're very welcome. And from all of us here at Reverb. It was wonderful being here with you today. Thanks so much for listening and take care, everybody. Bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Ben Williams, Sophie Wadzak, 
and Mike Loudenbach. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.